Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. What a week ahead then. A Federal Reserve decision and the payrolls report. They will come to you Wednesday, Friday, respectively. And Secretary Mnuchin heading to China with a big delegation to talk trade at a time when the Commerce Department is wrestling with requests with allies for tariff exemptions. I'm really pleased to say that this morning, this Monday, we're joined by Peter Henry. He is NYU Stern School of Business Dean Emeritus and Economist as well. Peter, fantastic to have you with us on the programme to kick off things this week. Good morning. Good morning. Delighted to be with you. Let's begin with uh, Secretary Mnuchin going to China, shall we? Heading to Beijing with a big trade delegation. Allies trying to work out whether the tariffs on aluminum and steel apply to them and whether they'll get tariff exemptions extended. Do you have any clarity on, on the direction of travel of this specific uh, issue, Peter? Well, I, I'm not going to be able to forecast uh, how this how this negotiation is going to turn out. I think that's probably a fool's errand. But I think the big picture to remember here is that the global economy is deeply dependent on the United States and China having good relations and that's got to be the, the the center sort of negotiating stance of both both parties because uh, you know forgetting that uh, we lose sight of the fact that the United States has been benefiting enormously from lower consumer goods prices uh, from from trade with China for years, and so in trying to get a better deal in some sense for U.S. corporations, it's imperative to remember that the U.S. economy, the world economy, is a lot better off as a result of having more, not less, trade. We're um, sort of losing sight of the fact as well that much of what is on the table is just a proposal on the table and not a real change in policy. Um, are you surprised that we're a year on and change into this administration and actually haven't seen a, a substantial change in policy? Had a lot of proposals, a lot of rhetoric, but no real change in policy as far as I can see. Yeah, I think you know you've seen uh, a lot of volatility in terms of what's sort of come out of in terms of proposals from this administration. I mean, you saw it uh, about a week ago now when <clears throat> President Trump uh, uh, indicated he wanted to be back in, as part of TPP, TPP and then not part of TPP. I mean, I think that's the sort of thing you're alluding to—a bigger vision around trade, which says, "Look, the United States is only five percent of the world's population, but we're twenty-five percent of global, global GDP, and that would never happen without a world of free trade." And in fact, we should be pushing for more of that and creating more of a positive sum outcome, which will be good not only for the United States, but be good for the world. But in particular, be, would be good for the U.S. consumers and U.S. workers. And no, we haven't seen that. We had a day of hope on Friday between North and South Korea and the president actually congratulating President Xi. Some warm words for President Xi for the amount of pressure that he's put on North Korea. And I guess a big question mark at this point is whether we can blend, continue to blend the foreign policy effort of this administration with the international trade story as well, because the president himself has done that. And you just wonder whether there's an open door to walk back some of this rhetoric on trade now that some improvement has been made on the North Korea side of things. Well, I think it's an important point. I think that anything which, uh, if you will, sort of de-escalates uh, the, the, the rhetoric around trade wars and retaliation and recognizes the positive sum nature of global trade, I think would be, would be useful. It would be useful from the, from the point of view of not, um, not backing uh, people in the corners. But also, I think, I think markets would welcome that 
as well. And I think that would uh, reduce some of the volatility we've seen recently. Uh, just in terms of what markets are looking at this morning, deal flow really picking up. Another one crossing the Bloomberg Marriott Vacations to acquire ILG in a cash and stock deal. And Tom Keane, you add that onto Sprint T-Mobile this morning, a deal <laughs> with Marathon in the in the oil space, the energy space. And over in the UK, of course, Walmart yeah. selling that stake in, in Asda to Sainsbury's too. So a lot of deal flow this Monday morning. I wonder higher rates, like money was cheap, let's get it done now. Maybe. I, I really wonder about that. A lot of stock deal in this, and you just yeah. look at the equity as a currency, and I, I think some yeah. companies are trying to spend it while they can. Yeah, well, let's go, let's go with that. We got Dean Henry with us, which is a good reason to, I should say, excuse me, John, Dean Emeritus Henry uh, with us as well. I, ju I just called him Peter. That's what my mother calls me. I should can we, can we call you Peter? Absolutely. <laughs> long, before, long before you darkened the door at, at, at NYU, uh, it was one of my original sponsors. And we always thank Stern School of Business for their support of Bloomberg on the Economy and Bloomberg Surveillance. Well, thank you. We've had a lot of your students over the years, and they've done very well. Really? Yes, they have. Yeah, I mean, Tania, I think, pulled a quality C, you know. Can, can, we, just, can we just think of Tanya for a little while, that she's been called Tania? No, on I think, Bloomberg you know, surveillance it was forever. a miracle she got through Stern. I mean, force, just, did you force students to listen to this? <laughs> yeah, they do. They for, it's a forced podcast. For the first time, I will have two books of the summer. That's how good the book flow has been. Garrett Graff's The Threat Matrix is on the Federal Bureau of Investigation and on the Robert Mueller that we don't know. And the other book took at least three seconds to decide to feature is a book of the summer. Robert Kaplan, agree or disagree, has driven the debate on realist foreign policy in America for decades. His new book, the Return of Marco Polo's World is a set of articles and new observations, which is definitive. Robert Kaplan joins us uh, in Washington in our 99.1 FM studios. He is with Eurasia Group, Ian Bremer Shop, among other uh, abilities. What's your number one message to Mr. Mnuchin going to China, Robert Kaplan? I think the number one message, Tom, is to preserve the relationship that um, you know, that trade has the ability, if you have a really, t you know, tumultuous trading relationship that's not well-defined, that's not on board, this affects the military situation in the South and East China Sea. It affects politics throughout uh, the Indo-Pacific and Central Asia. In other words, trade is not isolated. It's all part of a geopolitical mix. Within the synthesis, and this is the heart of your book, is the complexities that need to be thought through. The reality is we have a president who is bilateral. He says, and many would say, my deal or the highway is the theory. How do you drag this president into a more complex discussion? Um, I think what you do is... Um you, well, first of all, you have advisors. And the advisors, as extreme as some of them may be, be may be are still far more nuanced than the president is and you you know you just tell him that you know if you do this here are all the consequences here are all the second and third and fourth order effects and china is developing a society and a system 
that is going to be, uh, you know, that is going to be not only a great competitor of the United States, it already is, but is on track to overtake the United States in the decades to come unless we're very careful and can compete with them throughout Eurasia and the rest of the world in a very sly fashion. So, Robert, at the moment, and Jonathan, by the way, speaking, and great to have you with us on the program. Thank you for joining us, Robert. Um, the, guess, the question for me is China sort of establishes this Silk Road strategy for the whole region. What is the geostrategic sort of aim of the United States and this administration for Asia right now? Well, I think um, we've had 75 years of, new, of liberal world order building, and the mistake that many of us is, have made is to think that that's normal. But in the long span of history, the period between 1945 and the coming to power of Donald Trump has been an historical aberration. Most of history is geopolitical jockeying, positioning, wars, competition, rivalry. And trade can be just an adjunct to geopolitical rivalry, whereas free trade is an adjunct to liberal world order building. So what Trump really signifies is a return turn in you know is you know is counterintuitive as this sounds Trump actually signifies a return to a more traditional form of world history expand on that a little bit what will the uh, the implications the consequences of that approach be Robert well, the consequences are this. The 20th century was about ideological warfare, and that led to the deaths of tens of million, 150 million people in two world wars, etc. Geopolitical conflict is less bloody. Um, but it, but, but it's equally tumultuous. If you look at the 18th century, the 19th century, the problems, you know, of you know, British Foreign Minister Castlereagh during the Napoleonic Wars. This is the period we're back to, um, where you have the United States, China, and Russia uh, competing with each other with lesser powers like Iran, India, etc. Where, where, where a, a, bi- a bipolar world during the Cold War was very stable. Um, but we're entering a world where it's not even mm-hmm. multipolarity. It's more fractured than that. Robert Kaplan, one final question, and these are people that have actually read your books and I'm, no doubt will give a serious skim and full read of the return of Marco Polo's world. How should Republican State Department types respond to this president. Many are saying they won't serve this president. I think of Nick Burns uh, with his public service, Richard Haas with his public service, and others. Should they stay away from this president or with a new secretary of state, should they choose to serve as a public duty? Uh, Tom, the way it works in Washington is we have such a vast imperial system of undersecretaries, assistant secretaries, deputy undersecretaries, and on and on, that you decide to serve based on whether you trust the person who's hired you. So if they trust Mike Pompeo at state, they should go to work for him. If they trust Jim Mattis at the Defense Department, they should go to work for him. If they do not trust John Bolton at National Security, they should not go to work for him. It's a very diversified system so that it, you know, of course it matters who's the president, 
But what matters particularly is who their boss is and if they can trust their boss both morally right. and philosophically. Yeah. Robert Kaplan, thank you so much for visiting us today. His book, My Book of the Summer, The Return of Marco Polo's World. I'll feature that out on social. We like to do interviews after interview where there's a theme and there is uh, good conversation. We did that with Ian Bremmer Thursday, Friday last week. Robert Kaplan joining us with his wonderful The Return of Marco Polo's World, one of my books of the summer. And now joining us, James Trevitas, who had my book of the summer a year or two ago, his leader's uh, bookshelf, uh, just absolutely superb. He is, of course, at Fletcher School. Admiral Stavitas, good morning. In Robert Kaplan's book, chapter after chapter, he circles back to where he was with the Asia Cauldron of five years ago, which is the South China Sea and submarines. Does your U.S. Navy need a new Hyman Rickover to drive forward submarine development? We've actually got a terrific chief of naval operations who is a submariner, Tom, uh, Admiral John Richardson, and he's just superb. He focuses on the connections between our submarine force, cyber technology, unmanned vehicles, and our ability to use our strategic deterrence at sea. So that that Rickover is walking the streets today, and we're lucky to have him. Do we need a larger Navy? Robert Kaplan says, no, we need a more intelligently deployed Navy. But if we're going to have a return of Marco Polo, the span from at least the Persian Gulf across the Indian Ocean, through the Straits of Malacca, up through South China Sea, up to Korea with all the news last week, that screams to be Navy, Navy, Navy. It does indeed. And my latest book, Tom, is Sea Power, the History and Geopolitics of the World's Ocean. And it talks about this. What we are to recognize is that Marco Polo went from east to west. What's happening now from west to east? One belt, one road. China is reversing the voyages of Marco Polo and moving across that area. And so we need a a bigger Navy. I don't think it has to be thousands of ships, but we're only at about 270. We need to be up around 320, 330 ships. We'll get there. But we also need to deploy it more intelligently and focus, as you said, and as Robert Kaplan would agree, on the South China Sea. Admiral Stravridis, has China ever initiated a conflict with a Western power? No, they have never done so. And they have always held themselves, and here's really the point, held themselves above the rest of the world. They think of themselves as that uh, middle kingdom between heaven and earth. And they've always felt we don't need to do that. That resulted, of course, in invasions of China from Western powers. Now, what we should remember is that China has attacked other Asian nations in the past and will continue to do that as they consolidate power in the region. And if we don't want the South China Sea and the Western Pacific to turn into a Chinese lake, we're going to have to remain engaged. Having said that, would we want the Gulf of Mexico to turn into a non-U.S. lake? You know, in the 19th century, of course, we had the Monroe Doctrine, which was designed for that not to happen. But I think we've matured in our geopolitics and the idea that the United States 
has a desire or a need to simply declare the Gulf of Mexico territorial sea and build a nine-dash line around it uh, is preposterous. And I don't think that we should allow China to do the equivalent around the South China Sea. Having said that, are we misinformed in terms of what we believe to be the threat from China? I think that there is a little bit of China hysteria out there to the degree that uh, we believe China wants to dominate the world. I don't think they do, but here's what they want. They want control of the South China Sea because it represents hydrocarbons, which is the missing card in their strategic suite. They want the ability to dominate East Asia and uh, move their goods in the way they want to, and they want to get into the Indian Ocean. So they're not reaching for global hegemony, but really regional control. It would not be a good thing for the United States to cede that to China at this point. Does the president understand that dialogue? I haven't seen, and I'm talking more from a military standpoint, Admiral, I mean, we've got the trade discussion in a bilateral slash my way or the highway dialogue. But does the president understand a Stravita's Kaplan world? I don't think he does. And, of course, he famously is not a great reader of books, but a lot of your listeners are, Tom. And on this one, I'd recommend Graham Allison. He's a brilliant professor yep, at Harvard. Yes, his new, his new book, uh, Destined for War, uh, China and the U.S. in the 21st Century. And as you know, Tom, there's no question mark at the end of that title. So uh, Graham takes a pretty aggressive view toward China. I think if you read that book, you get a pretty mm-hmm. good understanding. Perhaps someone should summarize it for the president. Do you believe that there will be a war between the United States and China? I do not. I believe over the long term, throughout this century, our interests converge more than they diverge. But if we are foolish about it and are either too aggressive, that would lead to war. Or if we're too passive, that would lead to war. We have to kind of dial this one in. I'm going to put out on Twitter, folks, Bloomberg Radio will see it first, Sea Power by James Trevitas. It is just read it for the first time the Admiral went to sea. You don't have to read it for anything else. He's like in the smallest boat in the Navy. Uh, he's got his floaties on his arms. He's like 18 or 19 years old. And, and he's going out of San Diego Harbor. And, you know, it's just that alone is worth reading. Right now, Sarah Senator joins us with Bernstein. Uh, We love having her on to talk about, I guess, our national diet and our national food. And Sarah, I want to ask a basic McDonald's 101 question, which is from Butch Cassidy. Who are these guys? And I do that looking at the 2017 annual report, quote, we have committed to getting more of our restaurants in the hands of our franchisees and developmental licensee strategic partners. There's enough ease in there for me to know that's a bunch of hot air. What does Who is McDonald's? Do they really own the restaurants that we're eating out of? I would characterize it as hot air because to answer your question, um, McDonald's is a brand owner. So they're 
job, frankly, is to do things that uh, for the brand. So think about marketing and menu innovation and um, essentially how they want their global footprint to look. And then they leave it in the hands of their partners, the franchisees, the licensees, to execute against that plan. So, um, yes, there are a lot of ease in there, but I don't think that that uh, diminishes the fact that this strategy is working for them. The strategy has been brilliant with lower revenue growth. Explain how you go from $27 billion of revenue down to 21-ish, 22-ish billion, and that's a good thing. What, what does it mean that they're $5 billion short on revenue from where they were a couple of years ago? Uh, yeah, in this case, one of the rare cases where, where shrinking the top line is a good thing because it reflects the fact that instead of running restaurants, they're just collecting the royalty from them. Exactly. So instead of yeah. right, so, so instead of reporting a hundred percent of sales for a restaurant, they're only reporting called fifteen percent of sales. But those fifteen percent are very high margin. They basically have minimal costs associated with them, just the cost of owning the real estate as McDonald's tends to do, yeah. um, and not much else. Beautifully explained, Pim. They take well, forty-five cents or so down to EBITDA. Yeah. Well, uh, Sarah, Sarah, I want to go through the menu. I want you to go through the menu if you can, because many people may not be familiar with things like turtle drinks or even being able to use your mobile app to pay for things at McDonald's. Go through the menu for us. Tell us what's working for them and uh, don't leave out the garlic. (laughs) I'll try not to. Um, I think working for them is what we think of as the barbell strategy, which is on the one end, you have you know more premium products. Um, last year, the, there was a real focus on these signature crafted uh, hamburgers, which had three different builds that you could choose from, and you could choose either uh, a, a hamburger or a chicken sandwich, and you could choose different kinds of buns. So it's sort of what I would call mass customization. And they were, frankly, very well received because they're pretty delicious. So you had you know things like a pico de gallo which also had guacamole, uh, which tasted like real guacamole, um, and other builds, uh, the two other builds, both of which had bacon because everything tastes better with bacon. So on the one end, you had that, the premium, and then on the other end, you had them really emphasizing um, being competitive in value, as C.V. Strubrick would say. So um, not necessarily being the lowest price point and every item at every time, but having an offering like the McPick two for two or the dollar soda, $2 coffee that was very compelling um, to, to restaurant goers. And we're seeing that again this year uh, with the one, two, three dollar value menu on the on the low end, but then also this fresh beef quarter pounder, which again um, is is now available in the New York area, and it's it's a very good sandwich. So McDonald's is really trying to stay true to this um, philosophy of being a progressive burger company, um, such that they have good food that tastes good as well sourced, um, but also a value price point that can appeal broadly. Sarah, how are they able to do this so quickly? You know, I think, um, you know, what we saw with the leadership turnover in, in 2015 was, was really a cultural shift, and that was very much the focus, which is, you know, be fast, be nimble, you know, fail fast, as they say, um, but make sure that, that if there's a demand for a product in the market, that McDonald's is going to meet it. So, you know, uh, all-day breakfast is a good example of this. You know, that's probably the most requested menu item uh, or menu addition 
probably since they added breakfast in the 70s. And yet for a very long time, the system was hesitant because of the operational challenges. And I think, you know, the focus this time with this management team is to make sure that things like operational challenges didn't stand in the way. Same with fresh beef quarter pounders. It's a good sandwich. They know uh, it tested well. People liked it. And they were going to figure out a way to bring it to market. All right. For Tom, that doesn't necessarily get the McCafe that uh, has been so popular. He can now get it in a McCafe in a bottle. Tell us about those kinds of ventures, because there's not only McCafe in a bottle, there's McCafe bags, K-cups and canisters. That's right. I mean, this is still a very, very small piece of their business. You know, it's it, it, and it's always it's always going to be hard to to move the needle. Um, you know, in the U.S., when you have fourteen thousand restaurants doing you know two and a half million dollars uh, uh, per box. You know, any anything. You know, thirty five billion dollar system. It's very hard for any one product to have. Yeah, but it's going to allow why. me to segue into Starbucks. So that's why okay. I did it. <laughs> so that's what we're talking about. Okay, so it's, then there's value to you. Um, I think there's value there, too, to McDonald's. I mean, look, it's a testament to the fact that the, the brand is strong enough to be sold outside of the McDonald's restaurants. Whether it ever will be hugely meaningful, mm-hmm. probably not. But, uh, you know, but people like the cost. So tell Tom about Starbucks and what their challenges are. You know, I think look, Starbucks is a very good global brand. Um, you know, our view is that increasingly it may just be more mature than uh, than it's you know the company's willing to to yeah. acknowledge or let on. Um, you know, there's there's long been that joke about Starbucks in every corner, um, and and that is increasingly I think part of the yeah. issue for them. It, there's just you know, growth. There's only so much, so many units you can add uh, uh, before they start to impact the existing business. Sarah, uh, before I let you go, Chipotle uh, seven hundred down to three hundred. I guess with an enthusiastic bounce. Where are you on CMG right now? I mean, I I like this stock. I have to say, uh, you know, it's been I've been sort of a long suffering bull. We saw all these opportunities for the business, and the last management team just wasn't executing against them. Yep. And I think the reason you've seen this big move is because the opportunities are very much there in terms of driving top line through basic things like marketing, you know, more effective advertising, some digital initiatives, right. and also a lot of costs. And we finally have a CEO and now a chief marketing right. officer um, and chief restaurant officer and IT that are that are there and, and capable of executing. What can they learn from Stephen J. Esterbrook? <laughs> I think, you know, look, I think uh, being nimble, being flexible, that and, and listening to what your customers listening, want without yeah. going, you know, going too far astray from your core value proposition. I think everybody can learn that. Sarah, uh, just terrific. Thank you. Sarah Senator on short notice on Bernstein and McDonald's. There was the L word, Pim. Listen, it's just stunning. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.